The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So we're in a series called The Church That Jesus Builds. And what we're doing over the course of the next few weeks is we're taking Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church, and we're considering each of those words in that phrase. So last week, Aaron taught on what it means that, I, that Christ will build his church. Today, we're going to look at I will build my church. What does it mean that Christ will build his church? Next Sunday, we're going to ask, what does it mean that Christ builds his church? We're going to talk today about the inevitability of Christ's promise, that he will build his church. Now, let me ask you, when you hear the word inevitability, what comes to mind for you? What is an inevitability in your life? Maybe you think of death and taxes, right? That there's nothing for, for sure but death and taxes. Maybe your family is like mine and you are very strict with your holiday rhythms and family Thanksgiving dinner with Grandma Hoffman. That is an inevitability. Right, we, we're going to do Thanksgiving dinner with Grandma. You better believe it. This place, this time, these two people will fuss. It will happen. Maybe it's a family beach trip. Maybe it's the last week of June for you. Inevitably, every single year, my family is going to Hilton Head. We're going to do this thing this last week in June. I'll tell you what's an inevitability for me. is that NC State is going to get really close to finally giving Clemson a regular season loss, but they're never going to be able to pull it out, and we're forced to watch another trip to the playoffs of the stupid Clemson Tigers. Like, please, NC State, Florida State, someone, Somebody, please. In Matthew 16, Jesus makes a promise, an inevitability, that Christ will build his church. But more than that, Jesus gives the Apostle John a vision of the end game of what he's going to do, of that church having been built. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Revelation is a book that's about peeling back the curtain to show the inevitable. The certainty of what God is going to do to show us what God has always intended to do since the beginning of human history. Now, anytime we hear the book Revelation or we, we start talking about the book of Revelation, maybe our mind is cast in a thousand different places. Now, Revelation is an apocalyptic book, which simply means that Revelation is a book that's about peeling back the veil. There are some elements that are concerned with the past, there are some elements that are concerned with the present, and there are some elements that are concerned with the future. But ultimately, Revelation is, in, is, is given to encourage God's people that God's purposes will be accomplished. That God's purposes for his people cannot, will not, won't not, will never, ever, ever be thwarted. The book is not primarily concerned with cryptic codes that need to be deciphered. Rather, it's showing the reality of God's eternal purposes in Jesus. And it's written to people to encourage them to remain faithful to Jesus, that although we may experience suffering and opposition, we recognize that that has always been a part of God's plan for his kingdom people. We're going to be opposed by the kingdoms of this world because our king was opposed by the kingdoms of this world. And so much of the book, and the, the best way to read the book, is hotly contested, and that's not what we want to do today. We don't want to spend a ton of time talking about the minutia of how one ought to read Revelation. I will say, I'm going to post it this week, there's a series of lectures by a guy named Don Carson that is super, 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 super helpful. If you want to dive a little bit more deeply into uh, uh, the book of Revelation and some helpful frameworks for reading through it, we'll post that online later this week. Now, Revelation chapter 7 is a vision of what's to come for God's people. Again, it's an inevitability. 
Human history is going to arrive here. All of human history is marching towards this end. And of course, this isn't possible if Christ is dead. One of the things, in fact, the thing that distinguishes the Christian faith is that our head, our Messiah, our Savior isn't dead. In fact, Jesus is alive, living, breathing, thinking, and ruling in the present tense as the God-man. And what happens in Revelation is the living, breathing, thinking Jesus, the God-man, appears to John in a vision and he assures him. He says, this is the place that I am ushering history towards. Be confident in this, church. Let's read again, starting in verse 9. We'll see what it means for Jesus to inevitably build his church. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. First thing that we see is that Jesus will gather his people from all peoples. That's what it means for Jesus to build his church, that he, he will gather his people from all peoples. We're told that John receives a vision of a great multitude that no one can number. The previous section, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 17, uh, John receives a vision of the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. The idea here is that John is being given a vision of the fullness of the people of God. Uh, we have a, a sort of a mixed metaphor at play here in chapter 7. The front of the chapter, we have uh, this vision of the 144,000 from the 12 tribes paired with this vision of the multitude. And it's actually very similar to another mixed metaphor in chapter 5, where at the beginning of the chapter, we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then we have the lamb who is standing as though slain. It's two different perspectives on the same thing that's being described. Similarly, what John is seeing here is the fullness of God's people. It's the complete people of God finally gathered up under Christ's rule and in his company before the throne. John is being given a vision, listen to this, of the final realization of God's promises extending all the way back to places like Genesis chapter 1. What does God do in Genesis chapter 1 when he creates Adam and Eve? What does he command them to do? To multiply, to reproduce. I've created you in my image to know me and to enjoy me and to worship me. Now go make more of y'all. Fill the earth with worshipers. Fill the earth with people who will esteem and worship and adore my name. Genesis chapter 12, after things have gotten sideways because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to a man called Abraham, and he promises that through Abraham, through you, Abraham, we're going to bless the nations. Then in chapter 15 and 17, God promises that Abraham's descendants would be like the stars of the sky, that it would be multiplied beyond number, beyond count. And what we see taking place here is the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. Jesus has come to complete that story, that God's people will be scattered and will be innumerable and will be vast and it will be full and it will be complete. A limitless number, not only of Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. Children of Abraham, not by blood, Paul tells us, but by faith. Those who have the faith of Abraham. I spent some time this summer, um, I was teaching with some students. And one of the things that was kind of a neat encounter that took place when I was teaching these students was I met a young man whose family had immigrated from Egypt. Uh, he, he lives now in upstate South Carolina, but he grew up as part of the Coptic church. If you're familiar with that, it's a long Christian tradition in Egypt. 
And we talked about one of the things that, that makes, at least in my mind, Christianity so compelling, and, and really one of the things that makes Christianity so unique, is that the people who follow Christ are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every stripe. The Christian faith is not some regional religion. You, know, you think about the religions that the, the Christian faith was sort of competing against back in this day. You had your people who had their regional God, and their regional God would go up against this people and their regional God. And the Christian faith, kind of flowering out of Judaism, says it doesn't work that way. There's one God who is supreme over all nations and over all peoples, and all peoples owe him their allegiance. That's the way the Christian faith is. It's not an American or European thing. We have brothers and sisters in China, Korea, Russia, France, Spain, Egypt, Turkey, Kenya, South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Finland, Sweden, and everywhere else. And that's exactly what this passage is envisioning. It's the fullness of God's people made up of all tribes, tongues, and nations that once were and are yet to be. It's the same thing that Jesus promises in Matthew 28 when he tells his disciples, listen, I've been given all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That people from all people groups will bow in allegiance to Jesus and will receive with deep sighs of relief and with joy the announcement of the gospel. This vision, John sees the fullness of God's people gathered together singing to their Savior, the Lord Jesus. And it tells us that this multitude is clothed in white robes. More on that in a second, verse 14. And we're told that they have palm branches in their hands, which is evocative of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember when Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem, the people were waving palm branches, singing, Hosanna, our God is the one who saves. Similarly, these folks are singing that Christ is our God who has saved us. Verse 10. Crying out with a loud voice, they sing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation, with capital S, singular, salvation, the salvation. Rescue from God's wrath, rescue from evil and death and, 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 and tears and pain and hunger. Salvation belongs to the Lord Jesus and he has given it to us. And all the angels totally concur. They're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God, saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. The second thing we'll see, what it means that Jesus will build his church. First, he will gather his people from all people. Secondly, he will be eternally adored by his people. Eternally adored by his people. The saints are here singing, salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb. And I love it that the heavenly chorus answers back to them in like a call and response. They're like, correct, amen, yes. I love that they say amen twice here just to make it really, really emphatic. Yes, this is our God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me. This is John being addressed by a, an elder is sort of like a, an, an interpreting angel throughout the book. They're kind of posted up to help John understand the vision that he's been given. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The picture here is of a people who have been saved from God's wrath, God's wrath and have faithfully endured. Now, the passage here mentions that these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. It's worth noting briefly that some take this to refer to a very particular moment yet to come, 
but rather this is best understood as the time between Jesus' first and second coming. That is the tribulation. The great tribulation is the period between Jesus' first and second coming. The reason that we believe that and the reason that we know that is because the term tribulation is referred, used to refer to that specific period of time elsewhere in the New Testament. And so what's envisioned here in this passage are saints who have trusted Jesus, who have remained faithful, who don't apostatize, who don't leave the faith no matter the pressure. And they're awarded this white robe. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Earlier chapters in the book of Revelation, we have this incredibly visceral imagery of God's wrath. One of the great aspects of the Christian hope is the fact that God is a God of wrath. Something that is always striking to me about the book of Revelation is how positively it paints God's judgment. How does that land on you for a moment? To think about God's judgment as something that's positive. If you're like me and as you've aged and become more and increasingly aware of the things that exist on earth, I just, I frankly don't know how one maintains their sanity apart from some doctrine of God's justice. This doesn't seem like constantly what we're seeing all over the news is is evil triumphing over good. And doesn't doesn't it give us strength to know that at the end of the story that there is a righteous, holy, and loving God who will right all wrongs? The scriptures and passages like Revelation describe, again, with visceral imagery that God is going to right all wrongs, that God is going to bring an end to evil. And the hope for God's people, who are complicit in the great evil of the world, is that we have received pardon. By by confessing our sin and by admitting our guilt, we have received pardon from the good and just King Jesus. And the result is that we are forever shielded from the consequences of our rebellion by nothing but grace and mercy. Our sins have been washed away by a fountain filled with blood. In 11 verse 14, the the paradox of this image that's here. It's like these robes have been stained white by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb, they've been made white. And for this reason, Jesus will be eternally adored by his people. It's like, how how could we not sing forever and ever to the Lord Jesus? How how could we not gather up all of our strength that we can muster and for eternity rejoice in Christ? Is he not worthy of all of the songs, of all of the languages, of all of the people groups? Is he not worthy of adoration forever and ever and ever for what he has done for us? But this passage gets even better because not only are we shielded from God's wrath, we are also welcomed into God's care for eternity. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does it mean that Jesus will build his church? The third thing that it means is that Jesus will shepherd forever his people. Jesus will shepherd forever his people. The imagery from this passage is drawn explicitly from Ezekiel 34, when God looks out on his people and he sees them being governed and ruled over by unjust shepherds. And God says, you know what? I myself will come and shepherd my people. 
And we see this finally realized when God is indeed the shepherd of his people. 11 verse 15, it says that those who, uh, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That God's presence is like a blanket that is sheltering his people. And then notice what John doesn't see in this scene. What are the things that aren't present in this passage? Verse 16, no hunger. Verse 16, no thirst. Again in verse 16, what does he say? No sun and no scorching heat. No South Carolina July humidity. I mean, what's the hottest you've ever been? Or the thirstiest or the hungriest you've ever been? Just imagine if those things were just completely removed from the equation. And then best of all, verse 17 says that there are no tears. That this is a land immune from heartbreak. No threats, no suffering, no hurt, no harm, no hunger, no thirst, no sun, no worries. The curse of Genesis 3 has been undone. Suffering and labor ceases. It is because we will be in the presence of the shepherd who protects us and who rules over us and who delights in us with singing. And what is there? Those are the things that aren't there. What is there? Verse 17, for the lamb who is their shepherd, the lamb who shepherds his people. The people before the throne are serving him with perfect delight and submission and obedience and joy. The lamb is sheltering his people in his presence and he's guiding his people to springs of living water. Anytime I read in scripture where it talks about being satisfied with springs of living water, the thing that always comes to mind for me is this very particular instance when I was training for high school football. I don't, I don't want to trivialize the imagery here, but this is what comes to mind for me. We would all, always do these things called perimeters for our summer conditioning. And this is South Carolina, you know, miserable humidity. And we would, we would go exercise in the gym, and then we would go run perimeters on the field. And we would run the width of the field, the length of the field, the width of the field, the length of the field. And then if you didn't do it within a certain amount of time, you had to turn around and do it again. You got 10 seconds rest, you got to do it again and do better time. And you would do it as position groups. And I just remember this one day in particular, my whole body was unicramped. Every, every part of me was cramped. It was all, it was, uh, death was, I was knocking on death's door. It was, it was over for me. But I remember the trainer giving me a salt-infused Gatorade. And when I, when I tasted it, it was like, that, that is satisfaction. That is streams of living water. It just, it filled me with life. It rejuvenated me. It completed me in that moment, right? And the scriptures draw on this imagery from these familiar experiences to say, like, this is the sort of thing that we can anticipate as God's people, being welcomed into his presence where we are given eternal felicity and bliss that, 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 is, that is beyond description and comparison. Shepherded by the lamb who is our shepherd who guides us by streams of living water. Don Carson says that this is a comprehensive vision of the ultimate blessedness of being the flock of God. Can you imagine, I mean, just, just for a moment, I mean, all of those things, hunger and thirst and heat and tears, they seem so endemic to life for us. Like, it almost feels impossible to imagine life without these things, and yet Christ tells us, Christ shows us that this is an inevitability. Jesus will gather his people from all peoples. Jesus will be eternally adored. Jesus will shepherd forever his church. Jesus will build his church, and he tells us that the gates of hell cannot stand against it. 
He will redeem a people and shepherd safely those people to the golden shore where we will know him and be known by him in a perfect, sinless, sufferingless bliss forever. And the forces of evil, evil are as able to stop this as a spider web is an avalanche. Jesus will build his church. And so here's what that means for you and I. I'm going to speak first to individuals and then to our church corporately. The first thing, to the individuals that are present. This is the church's future. And the question for you, is this your future? Do you believe in the gospel? Have you been washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb? Have you embraced and accepted your complicity in the great evil that characterizes the world in order that you could receive pardon from a good, just, kind, benevolent, graceful king? I didn't ask if you were a church member. I didn't ask if you've come forward at a place like this. I didn't ask how long you've been at church. I didn't even ask if you've been baptized. I've asked, have you believed in the real, living, breathing, active Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? He is eager to offer pardon to those who would confess. Do you share in the song of the saints in verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb? Do you believe? Do you believe? Have you, have you repented and believed the gospel? Not to the church as a whole. I would say that this passage offers us both a challenge and an encouragement. Challenge. Let's not misunderstand what Jesus is promising here. Jesus is not promising that he will build this church. Jesus is not promising that the Ridgewood membership roster will forever swell in perpetuity. He's not promising that the Ridgewood budget will forever increase. He's not promising that Ridgewood will ever finish those renovations on the second floor or that third building. And so the challenge for our church, the question for us is, are we building the institution or the brand of Ridgewood, or are we preparing people for this, for Revelation 7? Are we calling people to believe in King Jesus, to be washed by his blood and to live in joyful obedience to him? Are we committed to discipleship and evangelism and seeing the nations being made glad in Jesus beginning here in Greer and extending to the ends of the earth? It doesn't first matter how big our budget is or how many services we run or how many hind ends cross through these doors if Revelation 7 isn't the goal. The promise and the vision of this future challenge us to make evangelism and discipleship the heartbeat of our ministry. Why? Because Revelation 7 is the end game of history. God's people being welcomed into forever life with their holy, gracious, son-giving God. So if this is what it means that Jesus will build his church that he will for sure bring these things to reality, we might ask of ourselves, are we on the same mission as Jesus? It's a challenge for us. But there's also an encouragement. Because if Jesus will do this, then that means we are totally off the hook for bringing this into reality. It is not our job to produce the results. In fact, our call is to simple faithfulness. Faithfulness in following the way of Jesus and preaching the gospel of Jesus We can sow the word and we can trust that the Lord Jesus will see the rest to completion. One of the things that struck me just as I was thinking about this passage is how exciting it is right now in the life of our church. It's very exciting right now to be in a new building, right? To have new t-shirts, by the way, that came in this week that you guys are very excited about. It's a very exciting thing, right, in the life of our church. A lot of interest in what we're doing. We've got baptism upcoming, a lot of newcomers, ministries growing, But what about when we're not in an exciting time? What about when ministry gets really tough? Do we still believe that Jesus is building his church? 
Even if we see little fruit, even if odds are stacked against us, even if this group dwindles, do we still believe that the Lord Jesus is building his church? What we can do when we read this passage is know that Jesus is so much more committed to this than we are and that Jesus will have a people gathered in his name at the end of history. We can rest assured that the Lord is and will be at work, maybe even especially when we don't perceive it. And I think about the original readers of this letter, how immensely encouraging this vision would have been to them. Enduring opposition, seeing the Roman Empire being mobilized against them, Jewish Christians being abandoned by their families. This passage gives incredible assurance and hope and confidence that this is the end game and that Jesus will build his church. John Piper said this, what I want to drive home here is the triumphant authority of this promise. Ministry is not ultimately dependent on human initiative or human wisdom or human perseverance. It is ultimately dependent on the power and wisdom and faithfulness of the risen and living Christ to keep this promise. I will build my church. Not you will build my church or missionaries will build my church or Trevor's will build my church or Aaron's will build my church or pastors will build my church, but I will build my church. And who can stop Jesus when he has resolved to do something? Who can stand in Jesus' way? Who can prevent him from doing what he has set his heart and mind to? Is death able? Is sin? Are the forces of evil and hell and darkness strong enough to stop Jesus? He's a spiderweb to an avalanche. Alistair Begg said, Assyria's gone, Babylon's gone, Persia's gone, Greece is gone, the British Empire is gone, the American Empire comes right behind, kings and thrones perish, nations rise and wane, but the church of Jesus, constant, will remain. Jesus says, I will build my church, and that is the best news imaginable. And may we be challenged and encouraged by the wonderful, beautiful vision that we receive in Revelation chapter 7. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider what your word has to show to us in this passage, we, it feels almost too good to be true. But we're a people who come believing and, and we ask you to help our unbelief and that, that you would help us to latch on to this vision and th- this promise. May we be confident, Jesus, that you are bringing uh, the work that you started us to completion. May we be confident that you will gather your people together and that you will shepherd forever your people and eternal blessedness. I pray that we would be a people who are anchored by hope, by hope in your promise, by hope in this picture from Revelation. I pray that we would also be a people who are compelled by this vision, compelled to evangelism and discipleship, to seeing people welcomed into the faith, welcomed into the fellowship of the church, growing in our knowledge and love of you, Lord Jesus. I pray uh, this morning for folks who are with us who have not yet believed on the gospel, who have never turned from their sin and received pardon from you, Jesus. I pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see the, the beauty of who you are and the beauty of your good news and that as we, as we interact after worship, I pray that you give us opportunity to share and explain more 
as to what we believe and the things that we place our hope in. And we pray that as we sing this next song about our future hope of a feast with you, Jesus, that we would be just lifted beyond our troubles and, our, and the weights and the heaviness that we carry in for a moment and be given a glimpse of eternity as we rejoice in you and rejoice in the work that you've done for us. Lord Jesus, be glorified in us. May Ridgewood Church forever be a church that is devoted to making you known above and beyond all things. May Christ be lifted high here. May you be lifted high this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.